Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week on the show is Dylan Osiger, who is a professional mountain biker, climate scientist, founding member of the Protect Our Winners Bike Alliance, and much more. And so we get into it on a wide range of topics, including Dylan's bike career, his involvement with POW, and the motivations behind starting the Bike Alliance in the first place, his climate science and advocacy, his trail building and advocacy on that front, and a whole bunch more. And along the way, we also just kind of cover some lightly heavy topics around climate change, but it's also a very hopeful conversation in a lot of ways because we touch on a lot of ways that the mountain bike community is coming together to better itself, better the world, and just things that are making a very real difference in making the world a better place. So we'll get right to that shortly, but before we do, I want to take a quick moment to encourage you to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits that it confers, including a bunch of great discounts on gear from the likes of We Are One Composites and a bunch more, but also the ability to shoot me an email and get some information on whatever your next bike purchase or upgrade might be, which can both help you spend your money on the right products, but also stop you from buying anything at all. Just had a great conversation with a Blister member who was not feeling great about their current bike setup, and through a bit of back and forth, we were able to make some setup changes that squared things away and stopped them from needing to upgrade anything at all. So not only can a Blister membership help you spend your money on the right stuff, it can stop you from spending money at all. And we think we're pretty good at what we're doing here, so check out the membership. There's a link in the show notes, and drop us a line to get yourself squared away on what you need on the bike. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Dylan Osliger. Well, Dylan, great to have you on and looking forward to chatting here. How are you today and where are you today? Uh, I'm doing pretty swell. It's pretty hot out. Um, I'm in Santa Barbara, California, or at least just outside of it in Ojai. Um, So it's probably like 90 degrees outside. Um, But I just got back from Truckee, which is my other home, and then from res duro out in arizona so right on yeah bounce around a little bit and well on the subject of res duro wanted to hear a little bit about that we were talking when we were setting this up and you were saying you were headed off to that so it looked super cool tell us a little bit about the event and how it went yeah um res duro was sweet i went out uh mostly i was gonna go out by myself but i ended up linking up with some folks from specialized soil searching um which is part of my like athlete uh, trail builder kind of environmentalist program through specialized. Um, so aside from like the nine hour drive out there from here, um, it was really sweet. It was eye opening. I mean, the trails themselves were pretty cool. Um, I really like when trails are indicative of landscape and, you know, we're at this like 5,000 foot plateau over in Arizona and it's monsoon season and you're in this like pinion forest and, um, short tracks, but like all around really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, overall just like a really sweet event. Um, and just like really culturally eye opening, I think for me, um, kind of understanding like what the bike means to the Navajo culture, um, seeing all those kids. Like, I don't think I've seen that many kids come to a mountain bike race in quite a long time. Um, so that was really cool to see and just seeing how, the bike was kind of helping them like maintain their culture um, and kind of seeing, you know, all the way to grandmas and matriarchal like systems all the way down to these like 11 year olds that are just trying to like riff around on statuses. <laughs> it's, it's really cool kind of seeing the, you know, breadth of what the bike can bring to different people. And the racing was fun. Like, you know, party trains hanging out with buds from Colorado plateau. They did a great job. The food was probably the best event food I've ever had. Um, and I put a lot of weight on snacks. So nice. Yeah. I mean, that sounds super cool all around. Anything more you want to go into depth on, on the, the sort of cultural side of it, since you touched on that as being one of the key things, like, you know, you mentioned just seeing how the Navajo had kind of integrated bikes into their culture a bit, but tell us more about that. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, honestly, I, I do really want people to go to this. Like, it, it, this is the second year it was running and it definitely had more people attending, which was really, really cool to see. 
Um, but it could, it could be bigger. And culturally wise, I really didn't have any expectations coming in. Like I didn't, I didn't really want to put any pressure on the event itself. Like I appreciated kind of the tagline I had coming in, which was, you know, an enduro put on by Navajo for Navajo. Like these people are like making the bike their own. And so I just wanted to see what they'd done. And you know, I was interested in the trails and you show up and immediately there's all these traditional foods. Like they're taking masa and ash and they're immediately, you know, like making all your food right there in front of you. Like these grandmas that are probably 80. Um, and they're explaining kind of why the food is traditionally important to them, you know, what it means at this like level from thousands of years ago. Um, they sang and like did everything that was traditional to them. Like they made the event relevant and important to their kids and to the grandkids there. And I think I was just a witness of that focus, which is really cool. But also like mid stage, you're riding down and there's a dude on a horse and like, that's their medic. Like they had these wild Mustangs that they were just riding around. And it was just a totally different perspective on, I guess, that whole system of like what they're trying to use the bike to carry on, you know, like they're speaking in native Diné and Navajo language. Um, they're using their native ways of travel. Um, I just thought it was really special. That they were just like, we're not trying to like show off anything. We're just making this event what it would be if it was just us without any outsiders. Um, it was kind of my first time spending a lot of time on a reservation, like being invited in there. Um, it's not somewhere like most people consider like visiting um, like for a long period of time. So yeah, I think it was a nice way to just like open up the eyes to kind of the whole spectrum of what like an enduro event can, can bring. Yeah. That sounds super cool. And I'd, love to make it out there one of these years and try to make that happen. There's fast kids out there. I'll tell you that <laughs> it's spooky, but it's good. That's sweet. Well, so to kind of move on to the main reason that wanted to bring you on here is that protect our winners has fairly recently launched the Powell bike Alliance of which you are a member and you've got a pretty interesting and unique background, which we'll get into in a little more depth here in a minute that sort of ties all of those things that, the Pal Bike Alliance is doing together really neatly. But to kick it off, how about you just tell us a little bit about the Bike Alliance and what the goals for it are, generally speaking? Yeah. Um, so the Pal Bike Alliance, that's been like a solid, I think we've been working on this for like three years now. Um, and we're finally coming around to, yeah, to launching it to the public and kind of getting everyone involved. And it's been nice. And then it's like a slower moving beast, but it's, me, which is more of like a trail building side, um, which is where my cycling career has kind of progressed over the years from racing to be more of a trail and climate advocate. Um, but it also includes, you know, Rebecca Roosh, who's like as good big as you're going to get in endurance cycling. And it has gravel cyclists. It has mountain bike racers, XC, Enduro. I mean, I'm pretty sure Jesse Melamed's coming on, but like we've kind of got the whole spectrum of folks here. And I think it's really illuminated for me, like, that I wasn't alone in being a mountain biker that cared about climate and landscapes and the, the environment as a whole. And its purpose is really just to connect cyclists to their environment and to like feeling empowered to protect their local places. Um, it's heavily geared toward the U S um, you know, like there are chapters in Europe, there's chapters in Canada um, and those chapters do kind of help with politics in those places. But bike is this sweet opportunity to get some like bipartisan, pretty fair information about where the elections are, kind of what each candidate supports based on their environmental like policies and making it really easy for the individual to just go out and vote with like minimum work required, which is pretty great if you're trying to spend more time riding a bike. So, yeah, for sure. And I think it's just neat to kind of have this bike chapter going because obviously as people who like riding bikes doing it out in the world you know all of the things that are happening with the climate are super relevant to our experiences doing that and kind of mobilizing that group of folks to take actions important and so i guess you said that the discussions of getting pal bike off the ground have been going for three years now when and how did you first get involved and 
what's kind of all it all looked like behind the scenes to get to this point. Uh, yeah, it's it's a lot. And so I come um, so pre mountain biking, my mountain bike career kind of did the whole waves of, you know, like I was in grad school, but I was racing enduro professionally, um, getting paid, like had support, kind of went a little bit toward cross country and gravel while also still doing some enduro. And the whole time was focused on trail building. Um, and now my career has really shifted towards trail building. And as I shifted my career, maybe three years ago towards trail building, um, Specialized picked me up to support that in the same way that I was being supported for racing. And we did a film uh, through soil searching on, yeah, trail building, on climate advocacy, um, on supporting trail builders and bike advocates the same way you would support uh, yeah, you're professional athletes and pow. And I was good friends with Jeremy Jones at the time, uh, just through skiing. Like I grew up down the street from him. Um, we ski together. Well, he snowboards, but, uh, we go in the snow together and obviously like climate impacts had been very clear in that sport. Like <laughs> Tahoe, it rains almost probably more than it snows these days. Um, and he kind of, you know, pitched the point the question at that point, like if I was talking about climate and forest fires and trail building, you know, would there be interest in a bike chapter? And they'd already been kind of talking to Rebecca and yeah, the two of us kind of got that conversation rolling and over time, like brought in a few more people like Christopher Blevins and Sarah Sturm. Um, so kind of all the different sides and corners of the cycling world that we were attached to, to understand if there really was like meat on the bones, like do people actually care about climate? Were they seeing effects? Like we weren't just going to do this to, and I'm volunteering this whole time for pal, but it's like, we're not going to do it just to like, for the show of it. Right. Like we're not just launching pal bike to, you know, get more members or have a bigger voice. It's, we wanted to make sure there was a legitimate reason, like does climate impact cycling? And I think the resounding answer after two years of like reaching out to people was yes, like in a lot of different ways, but it's really tangible. But like, you know, I think the reality was like, if there's opportunity and it would help a large group of people and there's a lot of mountain bikers, a lot of gravel cyclists out there and road for that matter. Um, this was our chance to bring them into the fold the same way that skiing has been in the fold, the same way that surfing and trail running have been in the fold for a while. Like all these people deserve a voice in the conversation and pal was just that platform to give mountain bikers a voice. Yeah. Makes sense to kind of, hit yourself to this existing organization that's already got a lot of momentum behind it and doing a lot there. And so it seems like a very, very reasonable way to go about kind of getting that side of things off the ground and getting more people involved because stuff's important. I mean, I also like didn't want to step on any toes. Like we talked with Dave Weens and Imba and like, they don't really like Dave Weens, you know, did an interview with bike and said that climate isn't really the lane for Imba. They've got their own their own focus on advocacy policy, which is like fine. You know, you've got your focus the nonprofit, so there just wasn't it wasn't being served in the bike industry, right? Like, and I've felt the impacts of that as a trail builder for sure. Like, half my work is just rebuilding shit that gets burnt, and that's no one was coming to help with that. No one was getting that story out there um, and helping people understand why and what. So, yeah, no that that totally checks out. And so I guess. We'll just be interested to go a little deeper, though, on what you sort of see as the goals and the concrete steps that Pal Bike can take to further all of this stuff. Because, like you said, I mean, getting bikers' voices into the whole conversation is important. But then, what do you see as being the things that you really want to do with those voices? And what are the sort of next steps, I guess? Yeah. You know, I think it's like a twofold problem that like Pow is working to solve. Um, when I look at cycling nowadays, I mean, I got into cycling back in the 90s. And I guess when I thought about it back then, the triangle of the sport was like kind of equilateral, where at the pointy tip of the triangle was racing. And the other two points, which were equally valued, were like, you know, getting out in the environment and then community. And nowadays, I think that triangle has like really shifted so that racing is like this all important kind of top spoke and then the other two sides of the triangle like your average mountain biker like i don't go hang out at my local bike shops like 
they're not that inviting. And I'm not going to go in there and be like, Hey, I'm also specialized in like, I race fast. Like I just want to see what they treat me like as a normal person. And it's not like often somewhere I want to hang out. And like, I don't get to see the average consumer because most people go into a bike shop, they buy their bike and they never come in again. Like, and in that same vein, they don't ever meet their local trail stewardship. So you don't have like as many people involved in advocacy or in trail building at like the local level in a very weird way. POW is this like opportunity to like bring everyone together. And while we can, we'll get to climate, we'll get to voting. It's also going to have opportunities to like go to film screenings. Like you don't get to go to mountain bike film screenings that often like where they're being put in your local theater or like at your local brewery. Um, it's bringing people together where yes, they'll eventually vote, you know, every two or 40 years, but also like maybe they're going to become more involved with their local advocacy group or like they'll be able to express like what they're seeing in their local place and create their own local advocacy, you know, trail stewardship group if there isn't already one. Um, down the line, once you have people feeling engaged as individuals, then you get this point of like people, people don't have a lot of time. Like your hobby is, is cycling, is mountain biking, you know, like in whatever vein, um, or cycling, like you have a job, you might have probably have kids, like you've got other hobbies and like a house to work on. Like no one is taking the ballot and like reading through every single like 18 candidates, like, you know, policies and Googling them. Pal is this opportunity to literally put in your name and your address and it automatically one click, you can register to vote. And then the next pages have the main candidates, the ones that like have any likelihood of winning. And it's just like, it doesn't show you blue or red. It's not going to be partisan. It's just going to tell you these are these people's policy. Like that's it. Like make your educated choice. And you can literally right there, basically click all the people you choose and it'll make you a saved little PDF with a plan to go vote. It'll tell you the date, time, place, like where you're going to go drop off your ballot everything's done for you. It's going to take you like five minutes as where like voting can seem like, I don't want to wait an hour at a polling station. That's a really powerful thing. I mean, there's like a couple million mountain bikers in the United States. (laughs) Like it's not small. That's a pretty large percent of the voting population. And it does make a massive difference, whether it's, you know, supporting trails on the ground, funding for infrastructure, like trails and trailheads, diversity, equity, and all the way up to climate. So you know, it's big goals and little goals, like getting people to hang out, <laughs> the whole spectrum. No, I like that a lot. And I like that it's got this community emphasis around it of sort of helping the mountain bike and cycling community more broadly come together and just identify some shared values and shared goals for the world and try to further those. So that's sweet. And while we're kind of on the subject, you touched a bit on trail building and advocacy, but you've done a whole lot on that front and Sage Trail Alliance being kind of a big piece of that. So tell us some more about that and what you're up to. Yeah. Um, gosh, it's been a lot of years playing in the dirt for a lot of variety of reasons, but um, I grew up in Northern California. Um, I get to stand on the shoulders of giants and thank people like Greg Williams for like from Sierra Butte's trail stewardship for getting me into trail building when I was a little grom. And, you know, telling me like, I couldn't race Downeyville Classic until I'd like done so many hours of volunteerism. And I was like, oh, damn, I, I want to be a professional racer. I guess I'm going to start building trail. Um, and that was like a really good eye-opening experience of just like putting in hard work, but also realizing like how much goes into those special days where you're out like ripping with your buds and just having like the perfect day. There's a lot of like back work that goes into it. Um I moved up to Montana and uh, started like really being one of the board members and founding members and taking more advocacy role in Montana with Swimba in Bozeman uh, while I was at college there and kind of got to see more of the nitty gritty, like time spent in like Zoom wasn't a thing back then. So we would just go to community meetings and talk to the forest service and creating those relationships with land managers and learning how to not just be that bratty mountain biker that wants access to everything and doesn't want to do like, you know, I was happy to throw dirt, but like all of a sudden when volunteering's like, Hey, you're going to spend one of your weekends, like every couple months, just hanging out in a drab room with a bunch of people in suits and like trying to get access. And you see more of that work that goes into creating those really good days. Um, and then I moved down to Santa Barbara, 
Um, and this is like two decades after that first dig day. Um, and during grad school, I was volunteering. It was lightweight. And then we had the Thomas fire come through, which at the time was the biggest wildfire in recorded California history. And it scorched about 50 miles of the trails I was using to train for EWS. Like all the best stuff I was riding was torched. And then we had a mud, like huge rains and it actually ripped the trails off the face. So like totally gone, like boulders, the size of my, like my house that were where the trail used to be. And the trail was just like a ravine. Um, and I realized again, like someone's got to rebuild this, um, a lot of money. And all of a sudden you're like trying to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to like buy stuff for retaining walls and renting mini X's. And you realize like over time, just how much Sisyphusian work like has been done by those who came before you. And very slowly you realize like you have to become one of those people to hand it down to the next. Um, so yeah, now I run the organization that I was volunteering with in grad school, which is Sage trail Alliance. Um, we steward kind of the transverse range of California. So from just south of San Luis Obispo all the way to Malibu, um, we deal with about almost 300 miles of trail now, um, public access. We have partners, um, the forest service, we've got a few hundred thousand acres, land trusts. We have almost 16,000 acres at this point of public land that we've opened up with trail access. And I think we're averaging about like eight miles of new trail every year and then 30, 20 to 30 miles of restored trail post wildfire and about 80 miles of maintenance. So it's, um, it's busy. It's becoming a full job where like, as much as I love throwing dirt, I'm also like building up those next people who want to throw dirt through hiring hotshots who are firefighters in the summer. They're now trail builders in the winter and bringing, you know, big volunteer days together. And yeah, trying to grow this region. Like when I first moved here, like there was maybe a crew of 30 people that were ripping around Santa Barbara and post Thomas fire. We didn't have that many trails. Now we've gone ahead and doubled the trail mileage this last winter. I had Bernard Kerr, Camille Blanche, the Rocky mountain EWS team and the giant EWS team all coming here for training camps. Like we're hosting pretty good stuff now. So, and Christopher Blevins was doing his XC training here. So I feel like we've kind of, started to grow the region and see the culture and community grow, which was another one of those steps that I never saw. You know, you're always learning something new and advocacy and trail building and with forest fires and everything else, the job security is great, but you're realizing that you always have a ton of work to do. So, yeah. That's cool. And I guess along those lines, you know, you talked very well there, I think about just getting started in advocacy and kind of taking the first steps and seeing where it all blossoms from there. What just general advice would you have for people who might be listening to this and wanting to get involved in some capacity, but not really being sure where to start? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, like, this is what I'm always about is that like everyone has something to give, like everyone's stoked on something or really good at something. Throwing dirt doesn't have to be for everyone. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I have a master's in soil science and climate and I'm like really stoked on rocks and nothing sounds better to me than like, being out in the forest in like fireproof Nomex, like hucking dirt and <laughs> making new trail. But other people, that could sound like their nightmare and I don't blame them. My nightmare is doing marketing and trying to figure out how to like make an organization <laughs> run from the inside. And we're like, this year, I think we're finally going to be right around the million dollar mark, which makes us one of the bigger trail orgs in California. But we're only like number eight or 10 in the US. Like we're not massive, massive. But I want people to just reach out to their trail organ, like make that community, like make friends, go for group rides, like offer whatever you want. If someone came to me and was like, Hey, I want to do group rides for Sage. Like I'll just host them once a month. I would be so stoked, but no one thinks like that's going to help the organization, but it does. It creates community. Like if someone was like, Hey, I'm a graphic artist. Do you want me to help you make t-shirts or stickers? I'd be like, yeah, I suck at that. My handwriting looks like I'm 12. Like, all these things are really important. And it goes back to like, this is what, you know, can help a trailer advocacy organization. But you think about things like POW as well. And like, I never thought that I would be in my late 20s, spending time writing postcards, encouraging people to just vote. I don't care who they vote for, like just vote or like phone banking, literally sitting on a phone, like getting hung up on for 
people that I support. Like I did that for my home county in, in, in Tahoe. Um, I never thought that, that would make a difference, but it truly does. Like you send those like a hundred written postcards. I literally got people mailing back to me. Like this is like pen pals now, but it's like, it's cool. It's something that like encourages, it's that personal touch that like does make a difference to someone else. So, you know, it can be anyone. If people are stoked to help out at their community level, at a bigger level, it can take so many forms. I think it's really as simple as like reaching out and expressing your interest. Worst case scenario, I'm probably going to be stoked and take you for a cup of coffee or go for a ride. Like could be worse. Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. You touched a little bit on it in there, but let's go a little bit deeper on your background as a climate scientist as well, because that's kind of a pretty significant piece of this puzzle and something that I think you bring to the table in a rather unique way. I guess floor is yours. Tell us about that and what you've been up to on that front. And um, became the most popular guy on transfers at the Enduro circuit. Let me tell you, just nerding out on like climate and rocks. Like people love that when they're gassed. Um, Yeah. I think like for me, science was like always this way to make sense of what I was doing like in the outdoors. Like I might've been throwing dirt as a junior high and high school student, but I was also like the worst student in high school. I just wanted to go backcountry ski. I wanted to mountain bike. I wanted to rock climb. Like, I think I graduated with maybe a 2.9 GPA. Like Montana state was really nice about letting me go to college. Um, and I went there and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to study snow science. Like look at all these classes that are outside backcountry skiing. And as I started to do it, I was like such a not serious student for the first semester. And then something clicked and I was like, why does calculus make sense when I'm skiing? Like, why does it make sense on the arc of a turn? And literally my like mountain bike and ski turns got better thanks to me learning something about math and chemistry and like, you know, the friction of dirt. Like I started thinking about the intersection between, you know, different types of rock and soil and the lugs on a tire. And all of a sudden tire selection meant something to me, which is insane. Like, you know, and this is, this came to play. Like I remember starting my master's and being involved in, you know, more large scale mountain building, like soil and geomorphology. And I was a year in and I was down in Mexico racing Trans Sierra Norte. And it was like me and Jesse Melamed and Sean Neer was there. And we had this one stage that was like 1600 meters of descent from like, uh, like this kind of wet, muddy jungle all the way down to like Moab slick rock with cactus. And I realized that like how much the temperature and pressure change would adjust tire pressure and fork pressure. And we were literally up there like doing the math on like pieces of paper, like talking about like, oh, like, no, 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 no. Like you got to set your pressures a little bit lower for the stage because by the end you're going to gain like two PSI. And it's like, this has been an evolution of just like being stoked on science and my surroundings because it made, it meshed with my other passions. Like, mountain biking and skiing and somehow I ended up with a master's, um, in (laughs) climate science. And yeah, you just like, you nerd out on climate from 200 million years ago or 10,000 years ago. And you see how it reacts with modern day. Um, you know, it just gives me a sense of like when I'm riding and I see, you know, an invasive environment around a trail, like down here, it's black mustard and poodle brush and, Rome, or if I see a native environment of like greasewood and chaparral, like you just see the evolution of trails. And like, I think that's such a cool relationship to understand. So yeah, I think it, you know, I have this background where I've been a rangeland ag specialist studying soil on public lands with like ranchers. I've studied climate through like biogeochemistry and like this radiogenic isotopes. Um, I've done glacial studies in Greenland and Canada. Um, like there's a bunch of science papers out there if you really want to dig into like Google Scholar, but really at the end of the day, they've fed into me finding a niche in like a niche in trail building and like using trails as a way to express landscapes and science. And like it's led me to like not get tired of it. Like every time I ride a trail, it's something new. Like I'm delving deeper into that place, like starting to see those nuances and those patterns. Um and it's given me so much to just kind of like want to maintain that for other people to experience the same thing. Um, so nowadays, yeah, I focus a lot on like 
using my academic background in building trail. So when I build trail, I look at like ecotones and environment, archaeology, geology, and you can create really unique stuff. I also use history to look at kind of historic trail. I built I, like I go out and I'll take old maps from like the 1960s and 1930s and I'll find trails that used to exist that aren't on maps anymore. And I'll go rebuild those. And you'll have these like sweet, steep, like Euro turn descents, like super rocky that lead you to these like crazy mines that were just abandoned at points. And um, I think that's a cool way to connect people's hobbies to their surroundings and their communities, kind of make it a little bit deeper. So yeah, the science kind of meshes with (laughs) career and all the sports, I guess. Yeah, there's so many of those old mining trails up in that neck of the woods that no one's been on in, you know, however many decades, but they're still kind of there and pretty cool to go find them. And it's a little bit of brushing. It's like the easiest trail building you've ever done. Like you go out with a silky or like a chainsaw and you can clear miles of trail and it's already there. It's pretty benched in and it's so, I mean, depending on how you like to ride, it's pretty fun. Like, you don't see modern trails being built like that are steep or have like technical stuff or off slope corners or are very rocky. Like the forest service isn't going to go for that. And I think that we're starting to lose a little bit of that as a sport, you know, like when people build trails nowadays, like I'm all for accessibility, all for, you know, those intro trails for families, but it does kind of pain me when I see people take those raw trails and kind of, for lack of a better term, like neuter them into flow trails um, cause these days it's much easier to permit and build a flow trail than it is to permit and build something that's going to like actually test your 160 mil enduro rig, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's something that we've definitely seen around here in my neck of the woods too. And I mean, like you said, I'm certainly all for building some more accessible beginner friendly trails. And I mean, especially, back in the days before there was as much organized advocacy, all the trail building was happening by very serious, very good riders who were just building gnarly steep stuff. And there wasn't anything that was beginner friendly as a result. So there's definitely a middle ground to be found there somewhere, but it is cool having a spectrum of things. And I don't know exactly what the answer is to making it easier to build some more gnarly sanction stuff to kind of cover all the bases, I guess, but, um, would be a nice thing to work towards. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I think that historic trails is a really underlooked method of finding kind of the ability to build those more advanced or increasing difficulty trails. Um, and that's part of like what specialized, like, like I still make part of my living from specialized, which is insane. Like, I'm, you know, looking across the room and like have a custom painted bike, which is probably nicer than anything I would have ever received for racing. And like part of what they support me to do is do this research into not only helping myself, but helping other groups. And so I've started compiling these older maps, like I've talked about, um, to find and catalog trails that used to exist that don't currently and share that catalog with other trail builders. So like, we're doing this up in Northern California. We're doing it in Oregon, in Washington, um, in Idaho, a little bit in Montana. I'm hoping to see it happen more in Colorado. I mean, in the desert Southwest, like Res Duro's using old uh, horse trails and like old wagon roads. And like, these are things that can quickly turn into trails and they're already somewhat permitted. Like they're pre-existing. So NEPA and all these environmental like permits you need are kind of moot. They're not, not required. Um, So, yeah, I think that hopefully like through support from like not only specialized, but if other companies kind of come to the table and start supporting these people that are running advocacy orgs or like, you know, doing this research into trail building and making it easier for others. I think you'll see this bloom in in trail riding and in trail building that isn't solely focused on, you know, the quick and dirty kind of imbo way, which is permit what they already know how to permit, which traditionally are like blue and green trails. There's a place and a time, like we're saying, you know, like I think the stuff they're doing out in Tennessee and like out in North Carolina right now, really cool. I also know for a fact, there's gotta be like sweet mining trails out there and like 
some old farm roads that pigs made way back in the day that are probably equally, if not cooler, but they'll get to them. And that's the goal is like um, empower people anywhere to do it because it's only going to make life better for the rest of us. So right on. Yeah. That note on historic trails is a cool one. And I've poked around just in trying to find some older maps to a much more limited extent than you have, I'm sure. But I'll send you a bunch of links where you can find some like really old maps of your area and like drag the bar and get back to like early 1800s or like late, you know, mid 19s. And you'll find some stuff you never thought was there. And, you know, I've been up to like old to mountaintops where I bushwhack for like three hours and I get up to a mountaintop and there's concrete feet from what used to be a fire tower that burnt down at some point. It's not on any map. Like it's probably some, and it's probably built based on some indigenous trail that existed before the fire, you know, forest service decided to build a fire tower up there. And nowadays it's just like a bunch of cedar forests and I have to bushwhack through deadfall, but you can find the trail, clear it. You can make some pretty cool stuff happen pretty quickly. Um, it's kind of an under talked about thing. Like, you know, that's why the Sierra Buttes are the way they are. That's why trans Cascadia had the success it did. And, um, very few people delve into those little nuances that make it more than just mountain biking sometimes. Looking forward to that. I guess to sort of bring it back to some of the, I mean, you've talked a bunch about kind of fires, job security, as you joked about it. And I think it's, kind of a key thing for mountain biking in a lot of the American West, especially, uh, you know, as you said, it's in some ways easier to picture the effects of climate change on skiing as a sport. And, but that stuff's real for, for mountain bikers too. And the little short film that you were in fairly recently, you about just the kind of how all of these things are tied together and how, climate change has led to beetles proliferating more than they had, which has in turn killed off trees and led to more bigger, hotter fires as a result of all this dead wood that's out there is just a really good example of at least one specific instance of how all of those things come together. And I guess I gave a little bit of a recap there, but tell us some more about that one. No, this is sweet. I'm hiring you as my new, new spokesperson as we go on film tour. That was a good recap of like, no, I mean, it's like, it's cool. And like, you you no longer feel alone once you start delving into the struggles that not only you go through, but that everyone goes through. And I think for me, like when the Thomas fire burned a bunch of my trails in Santa Barbara, I didn't know any friends had issues with that. Like, I was just like, well, I could, that sucked. Like lost 50 miles of trail and then it rained and it ripped them off in the slopes. It took like two, three years to rebuild a lot of them. Um, and then, you know, this year I got texts from friends who live in Flagstaff and it's like, how many miles of trail have they lost already? And they're still in flood warnings right now, just having the same thing, like wildfire and then massive monsoons. You see it and it's a pattern and it only gets worse. And the same thing happened in Northern California and like the Calder and the Dixie fire were around a lot of my trails in Tahoe last year. Um, and those were much larger than the Thomas fire was. Um, and then you start looking at kind of the other nuances that affect people. It's not just something obvious, like wildfire, like the beetle film was really, it was so fun. And that like, you know, you're looking at pine beetle kill, which will lead to wildfire. Um, and it's proliferating due to climate change and kind of the relationship between beetles and the trees and how quickly frost and, you know, traditional weather patterns, climate can kill the beetles and create kind of equilibrium. If you, so I should note here, my first research paper that I ever published was 10 years ago, about a decade with the forest service. And it was the relationship between mountain pine beetles and white bark pine and climate in Yellowstone national park. If you'd told me 10 years ago that the mountain bike industry was going to like support me making like a fun bikepacking film that's also slightly nerdy about like my research. I don't think I ever would have believed you. Um, the bike industry still loves those like short, quick hit, you know, ripping edits. And like, we all like those every now and then, but I've started to try and do more of these films that touch on the relationships that people have with place and how that place is changing. And my only goal is to just make it gin clear that the point is I just want other people to relate that to themselves and their own places. 
And so like usufruct, which nice work, you're like the only person who's pronounced that correctly. Um, the film title's like, intentionally confusing, but it's it's a um, it's an old biblical term that basically uh, it focuses on like farming. Um, the goal is to use a landscape to sustain yourself, um, take your needs from it, but leave it as good as you had it for those who come next. Like you need to return it in equally good condition. As a species, we're really bad at doing that. Um, you know, our solutions right now, like we talk about in the film, it's like you see this pine beetle problem that's very much climate driven and the government solution is like, oh, just log it, like thin it out. That's not gonna help. Like you're just gonna end up with way more trees dead. Um, you might stem a little bit of the wildfire, but like way back at the core of this is just riding your bike. Like go outside with less focus on self, like, and think about questions of the place you're in. Like, I realized this was a widespread problem when I was riding my bike in different places along the Rockies, doing the Colorado trail twice and being like, why is there all this deadfall here this year? But last year, this section was clear, you know, and you start thinking about like clearing 80 trees with a handsaw or like even the chainsaw, it takes a while. And you realize the beetles are moving where they're going and it's happening pretty quickly, like year to year. This is no different than people noticing like drought or extreme heat start like starting earlier in their home zones. It's no different than um, people noticing, you know, like more invasive species growing up and like moving quicker through landscapes or to higher elevations. All these climate impacts, even more rain, like when you have a hotter planet, you have more evaporation, which means more rain. Like every single thing you see, you can see the change in your place where you go the most often. I think that's the point of these films. It's like help people realize that like, A, they're not alone in their problems, but also it doesn't require like a lab coat and a degree in climate science to be a scientist, to like see things and ask questions and, you know, ask more questions with others about why that might be. I think that's kind of the whole point of like a film and then like pointing people towards empowering themselves and then doing something with that empowerment, which is like get involved. And I don't care if that's with your, your local advocacy group to go clear down trees or if it's like working with Powell to you know, change our country's climate policy to be a little bit better. So I think one of the things that that film did that I thought was just super cool was kind of, well, one, like I said, sort of tying together this concrete example of a very specific way in which climate change is impacting bike riding, but also sort of pointing out some of the mechanisms through which that happens. And for example, the note on how beetles just have a much shorter generational cycle than trees do. And so as the climate changes, as the world moves on and becomes different, they are able to evolve much more quickly and trees can't keep up with that just due to the difference in generational cycle. And, uh, so, you know, there's just some cool little information in there and neat way of looking at it. Mixed with writing, you know, like I want people to make science. If you want to call it, sometimes I just like, you can call it science, but I hope it's not like an intimidating term to people because it's not like science class. Like you're not getting a grade at the end of it. Right. Like it's literally just observation with writing. Like I also did another film called the long traverse with Christopher Blevins, which kind of focused on, you know, both of our different relationships with our home forest, the Los Padres, but like, you know, his with training for these FKTs and how his FKTs were burning. And we never really intersected until, you know, we realized that I was there rebuilding the trails and he was there like creating these routes and we were intersecting in place, but not in time. And finally it's like seeing how much wildfire and invasive species and like are just requiring more work from both of our ends. And I really like these concepts of just, yeah, continuing to give people mountain bike films that are great as like a film. If that's, you know, if you want to watch other people ride and get stoked on riding, but hopefully they also encourage you to like, you know, think about your own path in the industry and what, you know, the hobby itself, like, what does it mean to you? Like, I'd like to see more of that. Cause like, I'm talking about that, you know, at the beginning, that equilateral triangle that once was fair and kind of spread around I kind of want to see that happen again. And it's going to require people to focus more on either environment or community. And you're starting to see that be supported by the industry. Like I'm starting to see these people who are sponsored 
to literally like create group rides and like work on diversity and equity and inclusion. And I'm like, that's great. Like that's, that's sweet. Like, am I good at making group rides? No, like that's not my realm, but I can be over in the environment side. And I still respect the hell out of racing. Like I'm not trying to like take away from how fast and like how smoked I get by like Jesse and Richie and those guys. Like it all matters. It's just that if we're going to push, you know, racing reports and we're going to push pink bike with like quick shred or anything else, like, you know, I do really value that it's equal with environmental or community cultural aspects. I think that's why I found myself at like res Duro. It's like, this isn't my realm. Like just throw myself out there and see what happens. Um, but you see the industry support it, which we're still way behind, but like <laughs> we're getting there. So yeah, got to start somewhere. And yeah, I like that note about having racing, not be the be all end all focus of mountain biking as a sport racing sweet fun to watch fun to do it but you know it's not really all that representative of the way that most people ride for the most part either and so just kind of opening up more doors there and doing a better job of showing people that that isn't everything that mountain biking is is awesome so totally with you on all that yeah i think like you know, even res duro, like I went and I was kind of like, well, do I want to like try and go quick on stages and like let it hang out and see what I can do at these stages? Or do I just want to like see friends? And at the end of the day, I did every single stage as like a party train and had friends following me. I think I got like sixth or seventh in like our cat, but like no part of me is like, wow, I wish I tried a little harder and like got fourth, you know, like it's like just not important. Like if I think of these memories that I bring back, it's like seeing traditional song and dance or like we had this cornbread that was cooked underground for like 12 hours, like in corn husk. Best thing I've eaten in like a year. Um, hundred percent. Like that's what sticks with you. And like, you know, I think you can keep things like racing, but make them more, um, well-rounded, right? Like, because as, when I, like as a professional racer at times, like, you know full well that that event would still be there without you, but it sure as hell would not be there without the cat three dudes and gals, you know, like racing doesn't require the people at the very pointy end. Like events don't require us. Like we're there getting paid and we're being rewarded, but like it, it really lies on that foundation of like cat three, cat two, like people that are just there to party without fans, like it's all gone. So you know, I just want the industry to support kind of the whole spectrum because sometimes it's easy to get lost. The other industries have already done it, you know, like look at surfing and skiing. Like we're always 10 years behind. Hey, like you think about skiing and I'm like, when is the last time other than the Olympics, maybe that I've like even thought about a ski competition. I think I did like Red Bull raid a couple of years ago and did well, like, but it's a touring competition. It's in like Olympic Valley. And otherwise like skiing is entirely focused on like films that are around questions or like the environment or going to new places surfing like yeah there's still a world tour but like the best paid surfer is probably john john and like that dude makes honey in his backyard and just sails around the world in this like solar boat and like he's doing great like people care about free surfing and the malloys but they've been at this for 10 years and like i really want to see more people start making films within the industry or like creating an industry vibe. that's like events that maybe have racing, but the focus is on community and culture or environment. And it's rewarded for that, you know, or films are focused on bigger questions than just like conquering some mountain. Cause like, to be frank, like if the storyline of some film is like some dude drinking a coffee, putting on some goggles and then like ripping a downhill track, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like as long as you're not blowing up the spot, but like, I don't know, like, I'm not going to watch two of those a week, like, but there's probably 80 of them a week. You know, there's just balance to be found and it's coming. Yeah. We're figuring it out and, you know, mountain biking is a relatively young sport too. So there's, there's that, you know, just certainly not as far along that growth trajectory as skiing is for sure. And like you said, I think things are changing on that front and we're getting to a place where there are just more options and more pathways through it, which is awesome. Well, this is maybe 
an unfair question to ask, given what you just threw down there. But we do like to wrap up by asking for a specific big idea from our guests. So do you have anything else to go with on top of that? <laughs> oh, man, more big ideas. Um, I'm already asking for so much. Yeah, you know, like, it kind of goes with, like, I'm already really thankful for, like, me getting industry support. And, like, so the soil searching program through Specialized supports, like, a good number of builders. I think it's, like, 40 or 50 worldwide at this point that are getting support through like tools, through bikes, through funds, you name it for what they're doing. And it ranges from like UNESCO World Heritage to um, man, like community and building trails in South America and cities to me doing more historic climate stuff. And, you know, when I think about it, so I come from Northern California where like hunting and fishing is a big thing. Um, and I grew up doing those things. And the one thing that's always struck, struck me as kind of odd is that, you know, while mountain biking is a young sport, since about the 1930s, hunting and fishing have been, uh, they have an excise tax. So they made a law where when you buy a gun, you buy a bow, you buy a bait and tackle, um, you pay between three and 11% of an extra tax. And that money goes straight to the federal government to fish and wildlife. It can be used for no other department in the government except fish and wildlife to work on conserving wetlands, bird and fowl, ungulates, game species, it preserves the environment. That industry for almost a hundred years has basically realized they can't sell, they can't continue their culture and their sport without the foundation of it. Cycling right now, like, don't get me wrong. Like I love Santa Cruz pay dirt. I like specialized soil searching drops in a bucket. Like, you know, like giving away a hundred grand a year when you've made 400 million during like a year of the pandemic is I don't even think you're at like close to 0.01%, but like, yeah, I think that's the reality that we're dealing with is like, it's time for the bike industry and the outdoor industry as a whole to start investing in like their basic foundation, which is trails, which is environment, which is climate. And you're starting to see it at the small level, they're dipping their toe in the water, but it's going to require the average consumer to start using their purchasing power and their voice to encourage companies to do that. Like, that new stumpy might look sweet, but like, I can tell you there's plans in the near future for like a percentage of certain bikes from specialized lineup to go straight to a fund for trail building and for climate work. Other companies should probably follow suit. Cause it's like, if you're getting into the game in five years from now as a company, and you're like starting to test the waters, people are going to wonder where you've been the whole time. Um, so yeah, I guess big ideas is like, is big investments and probably sooner rather than later. <laughs> That's a good one and a very good call to action. So thanks for that. And thanks for this whole conversation, Dylan. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of good stuff in here. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, no, hopefully we get out for a ride on some historic trails someday soon. That'd be sweet. We'll make something happen. Cheers, man. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we'd appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Dylan for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.